grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. A few weeks ago, I had a birthday. And uh, every year on my birthday, I don't know about you, but I think about my life and the things that are important to me, the things that I'm investing my life in. And, and I also think some about the end of my life, my, my death. And I know that is a bit morbid, but I think about getting to the end of my life and looking back, right? What will that moment be like? Will I be proud of the life that I lived? Will I wish I had done some things differently? And I wonder, what would it look like for me to be laying on my deathbed and be able to say with all sincerity, I lived my life well? That's the question I want us to think about this morning. I know it's a big question, but what is a life well lived? I bet that if you and I went and walked down the street and we were to ask people that question, we would probably get a hundred different answers. Some would say a life well lived is, is having a big impact in your career field. Some would say it's about having a great family. Some would say it's about making a difference in the world. And, and some would say it's about being happy and, and enjoying your life to the fullest. But what would you say? Have you ever thought about that kind of thing before? What would it look like for you to have a life well lived? Today I want us to wrestle with that question a bit. And I want us to look at someone's life who I think all of us as Christians would point out, point to, as a life well lived. And that someone is the Apostle Paul. If we were making a Mount Rushmore of Christians, there's no doubt Paul of Tarsus from the first century would be one of the faces there. This was a man who was one of the first ever missionaries. He started many of the first churches. He wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Outside of Jesus, Paul has to be the most influential and well-known leader in Christian history. And we spent a lot of time over the past year talking about Paul as we've walked through his most famous work, the book of Romans. And along the way, we've learned a little bit about Paul's life. But in today's section, we're going to learn a lot more about this man and what he lived for. And we're going to see why his life was truly a life well lived. So let's take this last half of Romans 15 in two different pieces, two big pieces, and see two ways how, like Paul, we can have a life well lived. Let's read through that first part first. Romans 15, verses 14 to 21, Paul wrote this. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But in some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace of God given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus... I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. 
But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This first piece of the passage is a reminder to us that this letter, Romans, is a letter. Right? It's a letter written by Paul to a specific people in a specific time and place. So just as the letter opened, you may remember, with an introduction and a greeting, we now have reached the closing part of the letter. Paul has concluded his argument, and now he's going to make some personal remarks and some personal greetings. But let's also remember that this part is not somehow less important. While it may not seem as applicational as when Paul's talking about theology or giving out commands, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable, and equips us for every good work. So we're not going to skip anything, all right? But we're going to glean all we can from this book, even these final parts where Paul's wrapping things up. And I think you'll be surprised to see how much there is for us here. So in this first part of our passage, Paul is talking about his ministry. And it gives us the first way you and I can live a life well lived. Here it is. Number one, build a gospel-centered life. Now, that phrase, gospel-centered life, it's a loaded phrase. So let me just break down what I mean when I say that. We've established all throughout the book of Romans that this is a book about the gospel. The gospel, in its shortest summary, is the good news that Jesus saves It's a message about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, specifically his perfect life, his atoning death for sin, and his resurrection to secure eternal life for all who would believe. We said all along, that simple message, that's really the key to all of life. It's not just a little story. You believe, so you get your ticket to heaven, and then you go on to more important stuff. It's not just a basic Christian teaching that you start with as a little kid and then you get on to deeper stuff like studying the end times. The gospel is the whole thing. It's the whole kit and caboodle. It's the whole hog, the whole nine yards and any other expressions you can Google and find with the word whole. We do not go past the gospel or beyond it. Rather, we go deeper into it. We learn to trust Christ more and more and become more and more like him. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. You know, all of us have something at the center of our lives. Here's what I mean by that. If I were to walk around and give each of you a piece of paper and a pencil this morning, and I told you to write down the top five priorities in your life, I bet that a lot of our lists would look pretty similar. You'd probably put God and church somewhere up there at the top, family, work, school, hobby, relationship. We all know those things are important. But if we were to be completely transparent and really analyze our lives, look at where we spend our money and what we think about and what we schedule around and what we worry about and what we put our energy into, then I think we'd discover what's really at the center of our lives, what it is that we value or treasure the most. All of us have something there at the center. And so to live a gospel-centered life is to simply have Jesus in that place at the center of your life. Meaning Jesus and and what he did for you and what he's doing now for you is what you value and treasure the most. More than your family, more than your job, more than your, your career, more than your relationships, more than anything. Jesus and his gospel message is the driving force of your life and it flows out from that central place to then impact the way you talk and the way you spend money and the way you think and the career you choose and the plans you have for your future and where you're gonna live. 
this is what I mean when I say gospel-centered life. And obviously, there's, there's so much we could say about this. We could talk about all the different ways the gospel should impact us. But today, I just want to look specifically at what Paul says right here in Romans 15 about his gospel-centered life. Because truly, if anyone centered their life on the gospel, it was Paul. So now we know and understand what we're talking about here. Let's break down our passage. I want to give you some keys this morning to building a gospel-centered life. Now, normally, I do not have sub-points. They're not going to be on the screen. So if you're taking notes... These are going to be sub-points. These will be below point number one. Here's the first. To build a gospel-centered life, remind yourself of the gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15 again with me. Paul said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, fulfilled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Paul says, hey, I'm I'm proud of you guys. You're doing great. You're growing in knowledge. You're growing in love. You're teaching one another. And they're thinking, okay, then Paul, why did you write this really long letter to us? He says, by way of reminder. Even though the Roman church, they knew the gospel, they're growing, they're reaching people, they needed to be reminded. And this is a lot of what the letters are that Paul wrote. Sometimes he's telling them something new or answering a concern they had. But mostly, he's reminding them of things that he already told them when he saw them face to face or that they already believed. Uh, Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote this letter too. He said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on, he tells the Corinthian church the gospel message again because they needed to be reminded. And so do we. We need to hear this over and over again. We need to be reminded every Sunday morning the good news of what Jesus has done and what it means for us today. And when we build our services, that's what we're trying to do. But just hearing about it a little bit on Sunday ain't going to cut it. Because I don't know about you, but I forget things pretty easily. A lot of times I forget my own sermon by the time I get to Monday morning. (laughs) We tend to have gospel amnesia. So we also need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor, he once said, we need to stop listening to ourselves and start preaching to ourselves. Everybody's a preacher. It's just a matter of what message you're telling yourself. Jerry Bridges, author, he said it like this. He said, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. That's it. If we want to live a gospel-centered life, we need to continually preach to ourselves. We need to take that message and appropriate it, claim it again for ourselves, believe it again. We need to read books about the gospel. We need to listen to songs about the gospel. We need to hear sermons about the gospel. We need to dwell on the gospel and pray about the gospel. We can't just assume it. We can't allow it to become secondary. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel that's first here's the second way you can build a gospel-centered life give God all the credit 
Give God all the credit. That's the second way. Look at the rest of verse 15. Paul said he wrote to the Romans to remind them because of the grace given me by God. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Think of all the incredible things that Paul did. Very few people, if anyone outside of Christ, had a greater impact on eternity than this guy. He wrote books of the Bible for crying out loud. Like, I think that's pretty good. If anybody had something to be proud of, it's this guy. Yet what does he do? He gives God all the credit. He says, it's all grace. It's all because of grace. He says, I'm proud of my work, but not because of me, but because it's Christ in me accomplishing all this. This is a gospel-centered mindset. It's recognizing that you have achieved nothing on your own. Everything we have, every breath we breathe, every bite of food we put in our mouths, every good thought and idea that comes to our minds, everything we produce, every dollar we earn, every moment of pleasure we experience, it's all owed to the grace of God. Because here's the fact, folks. If it were not for God's grace, we would be in hell. We would literally be in eternal judgment. But the gospel says, we sang it, it says we brought us out of the miry clay and he set our feet upon the rock. God willingly gave me what I do not deserve. Through his son Jesus and his death on the cross, for my sins, he gave me mercy and grace. And everything beyond that is just the cherry on top. So if you want to live a gospel-centered life, you've got to remember what you deserve and what you got instead. And then you have to give God the credit he's due. Uh, Recently, I read this article online about the scientific research they've done on gratitude. They've done studies where they take people struggling with mental health issues like depression and anxiety, and they actually prescribe them gratitude. And it has a pretty significant impact on their treatment, they found. Uh, neuroscientists who are really smart people, they've actually found that when you're grateful for someone or something and you express it, your brain releases chemicals, dopamine and serotonin, which are both chemicals that make you feel happy and better. Isn't that wild? It's almost like God wired us to receive benefits from obeying him. (laughs) And gratefulness to God, particularly giving him the credit for what he's done in your life, it's going to have an effect on you. Not only will you feel better and happier, but you will naturally rely and depend more on Jesus than yourself, and you'll seek more from him. And the gospel will become more central to your life. So if you want to build a gospel-centered life, be like Paul and give God all the credit. That's second. Here's the third way. Third, to build a gospel-centered life, clearly define your purpose. The apostle Paul was a man who knew his purpose. He knew exactly why God had placed him on the earth, and he pursued it with everything he had. Look at verse 16. Paul says God had called him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Look at verse 20. He says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Paul knew his purpose was to reach the Gentile people, to preach the gospel in new places where no one had ever heard about him before. He saw that purpose as fulfilling scripture. We see that in verse 21. He says up to this point, he'd done it from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Paul clearly defined his purpose and lived it out. 
Now, to be fair, Paul had a unique, miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus telling him what to do. Something that we likely will not encounter. But Scripture tells us that we too have a clearly defined purpose. And it's very similar to Paul's purpose. Our purpose is to make disciples of all nations. That, I can say with all certainty, friends, is God's will for your life. Uh, I found out that, that Christians love to stress about God's will. I used to be that way. I was so worried that I was going to mess it all up, that God's will would be for, be for me over here and I'd go there. And I would think and pray, spend so many nights agonizing, God, should I, should I marry Amber? Is, is she the one? Should I go to school here? Should I study that? Should I take this job? Should I spend this money? And I would pray, God, give me a sign. Give me some kind of peace so I know and give me some kind of message on what to do. That all changed for me when I read this little book. It's called, and this really is the title, it's called Just Do Something. <laughs> and out of all the books I've recommended in my ministry, I think this is the one I've told people to read the most. And I got good news for you. We have this book available for free right here in our church library, thanks to our wonderful librarian, Julie. Shout out to you, Julie. Thank you. Wow. I mean, come on. Really, some of you guys just found out we have a church library, and you are, and you are really missing out on a great resource in our church. So it's there. Just do something. In this book, it taught me, taught me that I don't need to search for God's will because it's not lost. God's word has told me exactly what he wants me to do, and then I have the freedom to live out the rest of the details for his glory. So I have a clear purpose. Make disciples of all nations. That's it. But how does that work specifically? I mean, how do I do that? What does God want me to do? Well, here's a helpful way to think through this for yourself. You can ask yourself these three questions. Number one, where has God placed me? That's location. Where has God placed me? Number two, what am I good at? What am I good at? That's, that's gifting. And number three, what do I enjoy? What do I enjoy? That's passion. It's got location, gifting, and passion. And if you look at those three ideas as three circles, where they converge in the middle, you will often find a more specific way, a specific opportunity God's given you to glorify him in making disciples. Now, for you, it's going to be different for each of us. For you, that might be serving in a prison ministry. It might be serving in little kids. It might be adoption or foster care. It might be building better relationships with your neighbors. It might be moving to a new area. It might be starting a Bible study at your job. Whatever it is, you need to think about it. You need to seek wisdom from other people you trust. You need to pray about it. Then clearly define it. Let that purpose drive you. When you have a clearly defined purpose and you pursue it to the glory of God, you will build a gospel-centered life because you'll be living out the gospel in a very tangible way. So those are three of many, many keys I could give to building a gospel-centered life, which will result in a life well-lived. But that's only half our passage today. i got to quickly cover the other half. So look with me at Romans 15, verses 22 to 33. Paul writes, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. In this second half of our passage today, Paul talks about his future plans. And he gives us the second way we can have a life well lived. Here it is, number two, build a church-connected life. Verse 21, Paul said his calling was to preach the gospel where Jesus had not been named. And since Rome clearly had a healthy church and group of disciples, he, he told them, he said, hey, this is why I haven't visited you in verse 22. Remember, unlike Paul's other letters, he didn't really know a lot of these people. He didn't start this church. He hadn't been there. But Paul had a plan. His plan was to take an offering that he had collected from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem where the Jewish Christians there were struggling financially. If that all worked out okay, he would drop off the offering and then he'd head on to Rome with the ultimate goal of getting to Spain, an area which had not yet been reached. Unfortunately, we know the rest of the story today. Paul did make it to Jerusalem. He did deliver the offering, but he was arrested there, and he ended up in a series of prisons and trials. By God's providence, he did finally make it to Rome, but he arrived there as a prisoner. Still, he was able to preach while he was on house arrest. He wrote a few more letters that are in the New Testament. And he may have even reached Spain, maybe, after his release. That's debated. We're not totally sure. But we do know eventually he was arrested again and ultimately beheaded by Nero. But Paul makes clear in this section that none of what he accomplished in his life would have been possible without the church. He relied on the body of Christ to do all of his ministry. He spent his life planting and strengthening churches. He trained up church leaders. He gave to the church. He partnered with the church. Paul had a well-lived life because he had a church-connected life. And just like I did with this first point, I want to quickly give you a few sub-points for how you can build a church-connected life like Paul. Here's the first. Number one, to build a church-connected life, build relationships. Build relationships. When you read Paul's letters, his affection for his churches shines through, even when he has to correct them or rebuke them. You can see that he loves these people. He wants to be with them. He tells the Roman church in verse 23, he says, I've longed to come to you for many years. Verse 24, he says he wants to enjoy their company for a while. In verse 32, he says he'll come to them with joy and be refreshed in their company. So it's clear, one of the reasons Paul had a life well lived was because he not only started churches and attended churches, but he built relationships in those churches. He invested in people. He loved them. And this is exactly what we need to do too. I say this often, but church is family. 
Church is not a place you go and sit and take in and leave. Rather, it's a place to connect with your spiritual family. And this is why online church, as great of a tool as it can be, will never be a long-term replacement for attending in person. When the pandemic started, uh, having an online option here at Blue Valley was a great blessing for our church. We were so happy and fortunate to have that rolling already. And it still is a great ministry for those who are sick or traveling or homebound. But we all found out really quickly back in 2020, it's not quite the same. You can stare at a screen and hear the music and listen to the sermon and get the announcements. But you miss one of the main ingredients of the church. The people. (laughs) The people. We need that spiritual connection. I need that spiritual connection. And here at Blue Valley, that happens for us not just in a worship service, but also primarily in Sunday school. I know I beat this drum a lot, and I will continue to do so. Sunday school is where we connect. It's where we do life together. It's where we learn to love one another. It's where we care for one another. It's where you can know someone is checking on you. So let me challenge you, friends, if you are not already, get involved in the Sunday school class. Don't just show up and get your name marked as present, but get to know people. Do something crazy like invite someone to your house for dinner. Go out for ice cream. Grab a cup of coffee. Send someone a text just to check on how their week's going. Call someone out of the blue. Build relationships. That's the first way to have a church-connected life. Here's the second way, number two, to build a church-connected life. Give of yourself. Give of yourself. Verse 26 and 27, Paul talks about this, this collection, this offering of money he's taking from Gentile Christians to give to Jewish Christians who were poor. He says they owe it to them. Not only should they be sharing spiritual blessings, they should be sharing material blessings. And that's the way the church works. Again, it's, it's family. We all have a role to play. And that requires all of us giving all of ourselves to one another. That means giving of your time to be here and attend Giving of your energy to serve in a particular role. And yes, also giving of your money to support the ministry of the church. Now look, I know sometimes churches get a bad rap for begging for money. Especially pastors. And fortunately, there are guys on TV selling snake oil and churches that are corrupt and financially irresponsible. But here's what I learned from my parents growing up. Giving to God your first and your best through the local church, is how you honor God financially. And I watched my parents do that when we had money and when we didn't. Even when we were on food stamps for a time, my dad was without a job. We always gave to the church. And when I got my first job at 14, guess what I found out? I was going to be given too. (laughs) I was expected to give. It had been ingrained in me. And here's what I found. Church is like most anything. I said it last week. The more you give to it, the more you'll get out of it. And I'm not just talking financially. You should give as God leads you to give. That's between you and him. But I'm talking about all of you. Your time, your energy, your relationships. The more you put in, the more you will love and appreciate your church. The more you'll care about what's going on, the more you'll feel connected. So give of yourself. Here's the third and last way to build a church-connected life. It's this. Join the mission. Join the mission. 
Paul reveals in this section one of the big reasons he wrote this letter to the Roman church. He needed them. He needed them for his mission to Spain. But Paul realized he couldn't do what God had called him to do on his own. But he needed their support materially. And he needed their prayer support, as we saw in verse 30. I think if Paul needed the church, then you and I probably do too. Making disciples is not a solo mission. Reaching the world is not a solo mission. We need to build a church-connected life if we want to make an eternal impact. And ultimately, if we want to have a life well lived. This sermon today, I know, has been really application heavy. This is a lot, I realize. So let me just leave you here where we started. When you get to the end of your life, and here's the deal, we all will one day. We don't know when it will be, but all of us will be there one day. What will determine for you whether you lived a life well lived? No doubt your family will be a part of that. Your career, your sense of accomplishment will be a part of that. I don't want to minimize those things. But I've never met anyone, any Christian in their old age who said, you know, I just, I just wish I hadn't made such a big deal about Jesus. I just wish I hadn't spent so much time with my church family. Yeah, I really wish I just hadn't spent so much time serving and loving others. Never heard that. But I've heard a lot of other regrets. Paul had a well-lived life because he had built a gospel-centered life and a church-connected life. And whether we make a lot of money or not, whether we have a great family or not, whether we're successful by the world's standards or not, those are two things every one of us can accomplish. We can all do this. And by God's grace, we will. Let's go to him now in prayer.